beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how do you value different things in your life? What is your job worth to you? What is your marriage worth? Your family? What is your health worth? Our answers to these questions may vary, but ultimately our actions will betray the truth. If your job isn't important to you, you probably won't work hard at it. While you might say that your marriage and family are important, if you never devote time to your spouse or children, it shows that you don't value them as highly as you think. Many of us tend to take our health for granted. It's not until we face health struggles that we realize how precious our health really is. Now in comparison to our job, our marriage, our family, and health, how do you value Jesus Christ? How important is the Savior Jesus in your life? I asked this question to my catechism students, they would all know the right answer. We would all agree that Jesus Christ is most important in our lives. But is he? And if you say that he is, how does that show in your life? This morning I'm going to focus on the question, what is Jesus worth? What is he worth to you? In our text, Matthew wants us to ask precisely this question. He does that by the way in which he has arranged his gospel. The events in our text do not occur in chronological order. Matthew 26, verse 2. In Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus indicates it was two days before the Passover. In his gospel, uh, John tells us the story of Mary anointing Jesus at Bethany in Simon's house, and that this occurred six days before the Passover. Yet Matthew inserts this story of a woman anointing Jesus between Jesus' prediction he would be crucified and Judas making arrangements to betray Jesus. And thus in our text, Matthew shows us what Jesus was worth to Mary and what he was worth to Judas Iscariot. He does this deliberately to raise the question, what is Jesus worth to you? This morning I preached to you God's word under that theme. What is Jesus worth to you? We'll consider what Jesus was worth to Mary, what Jesus was worth to Judas, and what Jesus is worth to us. In the first verse of our text, Jesus once again predicts his coming suffering and death. He told his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. After this prediction, Matthew tells us about the plotting of the chief priests and elders. 
they gathered in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas and plotted about how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Yet they didn't want this to happen during the Passover feast because they were afraid the people would revolt against them. John elaborates on what Matthew tells us about the plotting of the chief priests and elders. In John 11, Jesus performed one of the greatest miracles of his ministry when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It provoked a crisis among the Jewish leaders. They said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Jewish leaders opposed Jesus because they thought he would take away their important standing among the people. They were afraid the people would revolt against the Romans and that the result would be that the Romans would take away their freedoms, that they would destroy the temple. Caiaphas, the high priest, decided, it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Thus they made plans to put Jesus to death. The question we're dealing with this morning is, what is Jesus worth? Well, the chief priests and elders' answer to that question is clear. They said that Jesus was worth more to them dead than alive. Ironically, they were absolutely right, but not for the reasons that they gave. By their actions, they showed that their position was worth more to them than their integrity. They were willing to kill an innocent man in order to keep their place and station in life. But as John's gospel makes clear, when Caiaphas said it was expedient that one man should die for the nation, he was speaking as a prophet. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Jesus' death would ultimately serve as payment for our sins. It would provide redemption for all God's people. It's amid the plotting of the Jewish leaders that Matthew continues his account. He tells us about what happened when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Matthew summarized what happened very briefly. He writes, A woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Matthew does not identify who this woman was. From John's gospel, we know that this woman was Mary, the brother of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had long been friends of Jesus. Luke 10, the verses 38 to 42, tell us of one occasion when they hosted Jesus and his disciples. Martha exhausted herself in preparing a fine meal. In the process, she got frustrated with her sister Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. She complained and told Jesus to command Mary to help her. 
But Jesus refused to do that. After scolding Martha for being anxious and troubled about many things, Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. The Gospels make it clear that Mary had a better understanding of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection than even his own disciples did. She knew that he must go the way of the cross and plan to honor Jesus and support him as he faced death. Our text tells us that Jesus' friends gave a banquet in his honor. Lazarus was there, reclining at table with Jesus. Martha served the meal. Mary came up to Jesus with a flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Thus, she anointed Jesus. What she did was not appreciated by the disciples. When they saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? They were angry with Mary because they thought she had squandered an expensive flask of ointment. They suggested it could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Jesus came to Mary's defense. He said, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus goes on to explain, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. We need to understand, beloved, that Jesus was not dismissive about the care of the poor. Throughout much of his ministry, he showed a special care and concern for those who were sick, disadvantaged, or in need. Jesus fed them. He healed them. He defended them against those who sought to take advantage of them. When Jesus said, the poor you will always have among you, he was quoting the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, Moses said, there will always be poor people in the land. What Jesus wants to convey is that Mary understands the times better than they do. The focus of Jesus' statement is not on, you will always have the poor among you, but on, you will not always have me. Jesus would not be with them much longer. As he said to them at the beginning of our text, the Passover was in two days. It's at that time that he would be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus explains that in greater detail in verse 12. He said, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Mary's gift showed that she understood some of what Jesus was about to do and that she loved him for it. Mary knew because she listened. We noted earlier that Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching while Martha was freaking out about hospitality. Similarly, after Lazarus died and she met Jesus, she fell at his feet. In the Bible, and more generally in the time when Jesus lived, to sit at someone's feet 
meant to adopt the posture of a disciple. Mary listened to Jesus' voice. She had witnessed how Jesus raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She truly believed he was the promised Messiah. Mary was right to give Jesus an extravagant gift right before his death. She sensed something important. She sensed something about the importance of this moment in redemptive history. Both in Israel and also in the church today, there will always be poor members who need care. But as the hour of Jesus' death approached, it was important for his body to be anointed. A condemned criminal hung on a cross, could not expect a proper burial with a proper anointing. And thus Mary did a beautiful thing for Jesus, something that would provide him with comfort and assurance in the difficult days that lay ahead. We ask the question, what was Jesus worth to Mary? John's account tells us that this expensive ointment was worth 300 denarii. A denarius was the common going rate for a day's labor. Thus, this precious ointment was worth about a year's wages. Mary took this costly ointment and anointed Jesus' body with it. We could say she gave Jesus her all. Jesus was worth everything to her. Jesus acknowledges her gift in our text. He does not mention Mary by name, but he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We know that it was Mary because John tells us her name in his gospel. So why does Matthew leave her name out? It's because Mary herself is not that important. The focus is on what she has done in recognizing this unique moment in history and anointing Jesus' body before his burial. The spotlight is on her Commitment to Jesus. To her, Jesus is everything. He is worth all. That's the point Matthew wants to highlight in our text. Brings us to our second point, and it will see what Jesus is worth to Judas. Our text continues by detailing the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. He went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. From that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas's betrayal of Jesus raises some questions for us. Why did he turn against his master? What happened to cause Judas not just to forsake Jesus, but even to betray him? into the hands of sinful men. Our text identifies Judas as one of the twelve. It stresses Judas's status as 
one of Jesus' closest followers. He was privileged to walk and talk with Christ for some three years. Judas shared in many graces. He sat under the teaching of the Lord Jesus. He witnessed the mighty miracles that our Lord performed throughout his ministry. Christ shared many things with his disciples that he did not share with the crowds. Judas was indeed one of the twelve, one of the chosen ones. The gospel writers highlight this fact to stress the sense of shock and betrayal that they all felt when Judas turned out to be a traitor. The fact that Judas pretended to be Jesus' friend is what makes his betrayal so terrible. Judas made himself out to be a loyal follower of the Lord Jesus. He passed himself off as a faithful friend. And yet in actual fact, Jesus' declarations about suffering and dying were what turned him off. Judas wanted to share in a kingdom of power and glory not in suffering. The Bible makes it clear that Judas was greedy. His response to Mary's anointing of Jesus makes this clear. John tells us that Judas was the one who criticized Mary for not selling the ointment and giving the money to the poor. John 12, verse 6 says, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Thus, the Gospels give us some perspective on why Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas was not a true believer. He followed Jesus out of self-interest. Initially, he thought it was useful to hitch his wagon to Jesus. With the other disciples, Judas thought Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom. And he wanted the power and the glory that went with that. But more recently, Judas had become cynical. Instead of promoting a, re a revolution against the Romans, Jesus was talking about suffering and about dying. He spoke about the disciples denying themselves, about them taking up their cross and following him. Judas didn't have any time for that kind of nonsense. He wanted the power and the glory. He wanted to sit on a throne beside Jesus to have an important place in the coming of his kingdom. He wanted the riches that went with that. At heart, he was a thief. He was greedy for ill-gotten gain. If Jesus was not going to provide him with what his heart sought after, Judas wasn't going to be his disciple anymore. But Judas had committed three years of his life to this venture. He thought he should cut his losses and run. But if there's an opportunity to make some money while leaving, well, why not take it? He knew of the opposition of the Jewish leaders. So he went to the chief priests to sell Jesus out. We need to take note of the price for which Judas was willing to betray his master. The chief priest paid him 30 pieces 
of silver. Exodus 21 verse 32 indicates that this is the price a slave was worth. If a man's ox gored another man's slave to death, he was required to pay 30 shekels of silver in compensation. Striking that Judas received the price of a slave for betraying Jesus. For Jesus came into this world as the suffering servant. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus had made it clear to the disciples that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a sense, we could say Judas sold Jesus into the hands of the chief priests for the price of a slave. We ask the question, what was Jesus worth to Judas? In reality, not that much. 30 pieces of silver was the equivalent of 120 denarii. It's much less than the value of the alabaster flask of very expensive ointment that Mary poured on Jesus' head, worth 300 denarii. The price for which Judas betrayed Jesus was less than four months' work for a common laborer. Four months was only a small fraction of the time that Judas had invested in following Jesus. In the end, to to Judas... Jesus was not worth much. He sold him out for whatever he could get. To Judas, Jesus was a waste of time. He was of no account, of little worth. Brings us to our final point, and we'll consider what Jesus is worth to us. Our text has highlighted how Jesus was worth everything to Mary and how Jesus was worth little to Judas. We've noted that Matthew has arranged his gospel so that it's not in chronological order. He did that specifically to contrast how Mary and Judas viewed Jesus so differently. He did that to make us ask the question, What is Jesus worth to us? Sometimes when we consider what the Bible teaches, we think it's far removed from the daily realities of our lives. But the people living in Jesus' day lived in the same world that we live in. Mary and Judas were everyday people, just like us. They experienced both the joys and pleasures and the struggles and sorrows of life. They each had their own dreams and desires. They were each motivated by what lived in their hearts. Ultimately, Mary was motivated to anoint Jesus with a very expensive ointment because she loved Jesus. And Judas was motivated to betray him because of his greed. Do we love Jesus? 
Or are there other things in our lives that have priority over him? Are there people or things that we love more? What we say in answer to these questions is important. But how we live ultimately reveals the truth. You can say that you love Jesus above all else. But if you're not living in obedience to his commands, you are lying. For Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Sometimes in our lives, people take priority over Christ. We may profess to love Jesus while getting involved in a relationship that's contrary to his will. We may do that by getting involved with someone who does not share our faith. We may do that by having a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage. We put our needs and our desires above what God requires of us in his word. Such actions show forth a lack of faith in Jesus. We don't trust him to provide us with the things we desire. We love ourselves more than we love Jesus. Sometimes things take priority over Christ. We may place too high of a value on money and possessions, on our business or our career or our status. We pour our time and energy into getting ahead in life, building our worth, securing our position or standing in the community. In the process, we often neglect the things that really matter. We don't take time for daily devotions, for reading God's word and praying to him. We don't partake in any kind of communal Bible study. We don't take the time to build a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, where we truly share our life with him. Our actions reveal that Jesus is not really first in our lives. That when it comes down to it, He's not really worth that much to us. This morning we read part of Philippians 3. In it, the Apostle Paul gives us an autobiography. He tells us a lot about his priorities in the time before he came to know the Savior Jesus. Paul thought he was investing his time and energy wisely. He was of Jewish birth, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of the law, extremely zealous for God. Paul thought he had it made. He thought that his legalistic observance of the law would earn him his righteousness before God. But then there came a change in the life of Paul. There came the time when he came to truly know God and his son, Jesus Christ. Paul was on the road to Damascus with letters in his hand authorizing him to arrest the Christians there. 
Yet suddenly a bright light shone forth from heaven, and a voice called out to Paul, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The answer was, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Then and there, Paul realized he'd been investing his time and his energy in all the wrong things. And now, some 25 or 30 years later, Paul writes to the Philippians about the critical importance of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. He writes about how the effect of knowing Christ changes our perspectives on life. He writes about how the knowledge of Christ changes our priorities. Paul teaches us we've only got one life to live, that we're to invest our time and energy and money into things that have eternal value. In Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul repudiated the things that were formerly so important to him. He recognized his birth and circumcision, his training and lifestyle merited him nothing before God. He counted all these things which formerly defined his life as if they were rubbish. Instead, Paul focused on what his Savior Jesus Christ meant to him. He counted all the other things as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. What about you? Dear brother, dear sister, young person, boy or girl? What is most important in your life? What is your heart focused on? Where do you invest your time and energy, your money and talents? Is your heart set on the things that this life has to offer? Do you really think you're going to find security in riches or wealth? Or happiness in the pursuit of illicit relationships? What is the Lord Jesus worth to you? Do you love him as Mary did? Or do you just seek to use him as Judas did? In the coming weeks, we will once again celebrate Easter. We'll focus our attention on the great redemptive events through which Jesus secured our salvation. We'll remember how he suffered and died to pay the price for our sins. We'll consider how Jesus rose from the dead to allow us to share in the new life that only he can give. We'll see the great value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. 
that in him there is life, there is joy, there is peace, there is hope. Beloved, are you willing to count all things as loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as your Savior? Christ taught us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He calls us to find our life in him. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together about Christ. We'll do that with the words of hymn 23, stanzas 1, 2, and 5. Mm-hmm.